Hello, and welcome to the OnTIC Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTIC Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Bergen, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burden here today with Oren Siegel. Oren is the vice president of the Center on Extremism at the ADL. Oren and his team combat extremism, terrorism, and all forms of hate in the real world and online. Recognized as the foremost authority on extremism, the center provides resources, expertise, and training, which enables law enforcement, public officials, and the internet and technology companies to identify and counter emerging threats. Warren, welcome to the OnTIC Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Warren, how did you get into this business? <laughs> well, like many people, a little bit by accident. Although I will say I, I was always fascinated um, by the worst things in the world. And so um, that sort of fascination along with, uh, you know, commitment to justice sort of brought me to the logical place where I was able to put those two things together, um, you know, 20 years ago at ADL, where I can combat extremism and, and hatred and, uh, and, you know, seek a better place. So it wasn't necessarily the first place I worked, and I don't think it's going to be the last, but for 20 years, it's, uh, it's satisfied uh, the itch that I had. That's a great story. And the ADL does such great work. And I know you do a lot of uh, reports and training for law enforcement. Uh, help our audience understand what the Center on Extremism focuses on and the kind of research projects that you cover. Sure. So I, I have the, the, both the benefit, the honor, if you will, of working with some of the, the best researchers and, and analysts and, and fellows focusing on a wide range of, of extremist topics. And so I always say we go where the hate is. And so the folks in, in the Center on Extremism are literally tracking extremist movements, individuals, their campaigns. Um, much of this is obviously in the online spaces that they exploit to try to get a better understanding of, you know, what do these folks believe in? What threats do they pose to our democratic institutions, to various communities that are targeted, and to frankly, sort of the, the, the sort of creating, how do they create fear and anxiety in this country? And then what can we do to mitigate that? And so we, we use the um, expertise that we build, the intelligence that we're collecting, and we leverage that, right? We leverage that um, by educating the public through public reporting and resources, for example, our, our hate symbols database, which identifies commonly used symbols, is, is used by a range of different constituents and the public at large. Plotting on a map through our heat map, 
different types of extremist and hate incidents that happen around the country so that people have that data, right? I think data is really critical. Um, you only resource to the threats once you know what's happening. And, you know, we make available, people can find out what's happening in their backyard from the head of the PTA to your, you know, senator. Um, you know, this is available for everybody. And then we also share information about threats that we see because of the spaces that we exist as needed with law enforcement, right? We're not law enforcement, but my subway in New York tells me every day, if I see something, I should say something. And so we do provide information when we think that there is a, a risk to a community based on a group or individual that we're tracking. And then just finally, I just want to say that, you know, to the degree that we make our expertise available publicly, we also try to leverage it so that uh, specific entities could do a better job in joining this fight against hate. So the tech industry, for example, you know, we could give them fish, like name a whole bunch of extremists, which wouldn't be practical or useful. Um, or we could teach them how to fish, teach them how to identify the narratives and tropes and symbols consistent with extremism so that they could do a better job of trying to stop that exploitation. So basically, we're seeing a whole bunch and then leverage all the partners and um, that we've, we've built over time uh, to try to try to do something about these threats. Orrin, what trends are you watching? So it's a very broad question in the sense that, you know, we have to, to keep our eye on a wide range of trends, right? How are extremists communicating with each other? How are they trying to communicate with people who may not be, you know, the sort of card-carrying members of their group, which is most people, right? How do they leverage technology? to normalize the narratives that we know um, not only create division, but at times motivate people to violent activity. So, you know, again, we migrate with the extremists from one platform to another. I think people have all heard of Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, of course. But I always say the platforms that we spend a lot of our time are the ones that are new, emerging, because extremists tend to be the earliest adopters. And, and that continues now. Now, the other trend I think is connected to this, but is the normalization of the types of narratives that animate extremists. You know, 20 years ago when I first started doing this, I think some of the, you know, anti-democratic, uh, anti-government, conspiratorial and hateful views were found certainly, you know, infringe elements online and maybe, you know, discussions people had when they would get together for a barbecue. But now those narratives are really sort of part of the normal everyday discussion. Billions of people have access to them in ways they hadn't in human history. And I think we've seen the impact of that, you know, from Charlottesville to an insurrection. Just to put a fine point on this, I think we need to remind ourselves that what we saw, for example, on January 6th in D.C., wasn't just about the 23% of those who were arrested that were connected to known extremist entities or movements. It was about the 70-something percent that were not. And to me, that speaks to uh, the normalization of narratives that have been responsible for violence in this country for a long time. Oren, like I have been involved for many, many years in this space, uh, you know, starting out as a counterterrorism special agent, you have as well. And as you look back on the 20 years that you've spent at the ADL, 
What has really surprised you? What surprised me is the speed in which people seem to fall for the types of stereotypes, the types of language that is created to create division and undermine democratic institutions. You know, just as an example, you know, QAnon, which started as almost like a lark on, on one of the chans a couple of years ago, has become something that is so centrally part of so many people that we know. So 20 years ago when I started this, I didn't have, you know, three degrees of separation from white supremacists, right? That or, or or, you know, Islamist extremists. They were not in my network of, you know, professionals or friends. Right. But but today, I know people who I consider friends, um, who I care about, who believe in some of these conspiracies that we know are animating people to violence, that are the lifeblood of extremist movements. And the speed in which that has happened um, partially because of online, you know, uh, accessibility and, and sort of the normalization of disinformation. I just didn't think that we would be here at this point so fast. Yeah, that's fascinating. I know in late July, we had uh, this individual who was associated with the insoles conduct some pre-operational surveillance at a college in Ohio. Are you seeing more and more activity coming from the incel movement? Yeah, incels, or, or for your audience, in, involuntary celibates. Um, uh, it, it sounds like, it is what it sounds like, rather. Um, you know, people who have a particular hatred of women, sort of beyond just sexism, beyond even classical misogyny, if you will. It's a sort of a deep-seated hatred of women who they feel rejected by. And a whole host of other sort of driving forces. Um, these are people who coalesce in online spaces to, um, you know, share their sort of hatred, and who increasingly we've seen have been involved in violence, including murders, um, in this country, in North America more broadly, and around the world. This is one of these evolving extremist movements, and frankly, um, we we should have seen it coming. Right? We often think about anti-Semitism or Islamophobia or racism as indicators of, of hate movements and, and, and potential violence. But I think as an industry, if you will, we've often ignored hatred of women as one of those indicators. In the past couple of years, with so many individuals who feel like they're part of this movement and want to act out, we've just seen how violence is not far behind, um, which which has just reinforced that this is one of the emerging, I would say, terrorist threats and extremist threats that we face today. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about Antec's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial this is why we created the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. We're regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, 
podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. Oren, I saw on your wonderful Twitter feed, you tweeted out about uh, Al-Qaeda posting an American Burns new video. And as someone who has watched that group since before we knew them as Al-Qaeda, it's easy to discount, I think, today, here we are, what, 20 plus years later after 9-11, that a group like Al-Qaeda is still around, but, and yet here comes this America Burns video. What are you seeing on that front? You know, I remember when Al-Qaeda or ISIS were more, you know, front of mind for for people um, in this country in terms of, of sort of a, a, a threat that they were concerned about was that Al-Qaeda was spending a lot of time building out propaganda in various different languages, including in English, in the hopes of winning hearts and minds. Essentially, so much of what we're seeing right-wing extremists in this country do today builds off of some of the activities that Al-Qaeda was involved with um, for many years on emerging platforms. And so while there have been legitimate efforts to tamp down on Al-Qaeda and ISIS over the years, it never went away. And I think this is the thing that we need to remember, that today the threat of anti-government extremists and white supremacists are leading the news. Yesterday, it was ISIS and Al-Qaeda. You know, even on this discussion, we've talked about incels. But we all have to remember that we don't have a luxury to ignore any of these movements. They ebb and they flow. They take hits and they regroup. They reform into something else. And this, you know, video and the propaganda that keeps coming out from Al-Qaeda and its supporters is a reminder of that. But you know, so so I think that's what this sort of lady, latest video reminds us. They continue to hate America. They're trying to try to exploit what's happening in this country to try to get new recruits. That's what extremists do, right? That's what terrorists do. They never miss an opportunity to leverage a crisis to try to attract new followers. The good news is, to the degree there's good news in this space, is that I think finally in this country, there's a broader recognition of the diversity of threats. Because it used to be Al-Qaeda all the time. And again, we don't have a luxury to ignore that, but I think there's finally a recognition that extremism and terrorism come in all different forms. Yeah, very well said. Now, Oren, tell me about your podcast. Sure, so last year, uh, just as the pandemic uh, was beginning, uh, so that uh, delayed it a little bit, I became a policy fellow at American University. And my, my friend and partner, Cynthia Miller Idris, and I had talked about launching a podcast between American University and ADL that would focus on the practitioners and the academics and the experts who are doing this work every single day. And so I, I'm, I'm the host of this podcast, and it, uh, we've had about 12 episodes thus far. And essentially, it's not only understanding the issues, 
uh, for example, some that you and I have discussed on, on this call this far, but also getting to know the people behind the research. What are the paths people have taken to becoming experts and academics? What are some of the issues that um, younger generation of folks should be aware of before they get into this line of work? And so I think it's really um, fit um, an interesting uh, sort of gap in the discussion of extremism where we sometimes don't consider those people who are, in a sense, um, looking at this every day and the toll that it can take. So for us, it's, for me, it's an educational opportunity to let younger people understand what they should be thinking about before they get into this racket, if you will. <laughs> but it's also, it's also an opportunity to um, learn, learn from people about strategies and tips uh, as they become experts, as they become the voices to push back against this hatred of how they should also, you know, take care of themselves and the people around them. Because when they do that, we will be much more impactful in our work. Well, thank you for doing that. Uh, I wish uh, I had the uh, wisdom to have, uh, or we had the technology available to have listened to something like that uh, 30 to 40 years ago to uh, make me a better investigator and agent as I was looking into some of these groups. Oren, as you look out over the horizon with uh, the tremendous work that the ADL is doing on this front, what worries you from a forecasting perspective? I'm worried about two things, but but I am, before I get into those, I want to say I'm, I'm, I'm generally an optimistic person. You can't do this work, as you know, Fred, without being optimistic in some way. But, but I'm worried that we are failing to recognize hatred and extremism. So it's not just that there are legitimate threats against communities, against democracy that extremism and hate represents, but our inability to even be able to recognize it, right? What used to be fringe is now normal, part of our public discussion. What used to be easily rejected um, by certain people is now all relative. And when we are unable to recognize the threats, to me, that's the biggest concern. And then when you add on that, by the way, the ability for these dog whistles and these narratives to exist in the same space as legitimate voices, legitimate news in the online spaces we exist, it's legitimately confusing for, for you know, everyday average people. So access and the inability to critically think about what we're being spoon-fed, I think is, is why we're seeing um, such a diversity and a rise in extremism and hate today. Oren, for those that want more information on your center on extremism, where can they go? Sure. So I recommend folks check out the ADL website, which is adl.org. And there is a page there on the Center on Extremism. Folks can subscribe to our monthly newsletter 
that provides highlights of many of the reports and blogs and resources that we produce. And I think that that's a good sort of initial step to to learn more about the center. But Fred, if if I may, just because uh, I have a rule that I always try to have a high note or something positive to say during these you know discussions about about terrible things, is one of the things that one can find on the ADL website is our heat map. I think I mentioned that before, where we have twenty thousand uh, dots on a map throughout the United States of extremist murders, anti-Semitic incidents, shootouts with police, and white supremacist propaganda, et cetera. I just want people to remember as they go through that resource and other resources that each point on that map is not just an example of hate impacting a community, but it's about an opportunity for people in those communities to do something. And so I really believe, not just because I'm an eternal optimist and this is difficult work, but I believe at the end of the day, when we look back at this time, it won't be the hate and the violence that we'll remember most, but what good people did in those communities to push back against that. Very well said, my friend. I want to thank you for being on the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thanks, Fred. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smokin' Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. I'm Fred Burton. Thanks for listening.